Thank you for downloading the Paragon Church Sunday morning sermon from March 17th, Questions Jesus Asked. For more information about Paragon Church, please visit paragonchurch.com. You know, I want to let you know that today is a big day in my life. Today is a big day for those who are Irish, and today is a big day for those who are college basketball fans. Um, And I'm going to focus mostly on college basketball today because that's who I am. But uh, also want to let you guys know, as we look at college basketball, if you know what today is, just raise your hand real quick. Okay, that's it. That's it. Come on, guys. I should have mentored you and discipled you better than that. Okay, you should all know that this Sunday is Selection Sunday for March Madness. Yes, it matters, okay? And you're going to probably, well, from the lack of hands going up, probably not. But some of you will plop yourself down in front of the television this afternoon. And as you plop yourself down in front of the television this afternoon, there's going to be guys who get paid to watch and talk about sports. I don't know how I missed out on that job. But there are going to be guys who are sitting there. There's going to be women who are sitting there talking about sports. And they're going to really ask three questions. And those three questions are going to come up over and over and over again throughout the afternoon. It's going to be who's in, who's out, and who's on the bubble. Who's in, who's out, and who's on the bubble. And there's going to be a tournament committee that are going to make the decision. Those selection committees are going to try and bring these teams together. The who's in are the ones who have earned it. The one who's out, they're the ones who haven't earned it. And then the ones who are on the bubble have what they call a resume. And the resume has quality wins but poor losses. And so they're going to make this decision. And if you're into this basketball thing, by the way, you can talk to Ken Black right over here. He will let you get in on the March Madness tournament whole bracket thing we do. It's all free. There's no gambling involved in it, so you don't have to worry about that part of it all. Just come, have fun. I don't care if you just pick the teams because of their colors or their cool nicknames. I don't really care. Come have fun with us. You'll probably beat me. So it'll all be good in that. So what you're going to see, though, this afternoon is this whole bracket thing come together. And all you're going to go home today, and you're going to really get excited about it, right? And that's my sermon for today, for you to get excited about basketball. Actually, this is the reason why I'm talking about that. Because today we're beginning to shift gears. From the very beginning of this year, for the last 10 weeks, we have been talking about engage. We started off with engage with God. Then we talked about engage in prayer and engage in the gospel and engage in your community and engage in the community of the church. And as we engage in community, it took us to this next set of questions. And that next set of questions was, what happens if somebody asks me something that I don't know? Or I don't know quite how to answer And so what we really got to see is all of these questions began to to play out there. And one of them I even got to answer this week. Questions like, is God real? Why does God allow suffering to good people? That was a question I got to answer this week in just a normal conversation with somebody. Um, I got to talk a little bit even about about the whole idea of, of the realities of hell and the realities of heaven. These were questions we talked about. But today we're going to shift gears from questions that we ask of God to questions that Jesus asked us. As we engage with him, as we continue to follow him, as we continue to grow in him, he has asked us questions, questions like the ones you'll see up there on the wall, and we're going to go through these questions for the next handful of weeks. Some of the things that he's talked about with us, some of the things that he's drawn us into. Now, I'm going to let you know this. We're not going to go through all the questions that he asks, because if you look throughout the gospel, 
Do you know that he asked over 350 questions of his people, of his followers, of the people who were asking him questions, he would respond with questions? 350. Well, if you break that down by the Sunday, that's like, what, seven years. So we're not going to do that uh, because that would be a really long sermon series, at least for me. Maybe you're like, no, that's what we need to do. But we will continue to look at that. But today we're going to look at a specific question. Actually, today we're going to look at a question that he didn't even ask, but instead he answered with a question. And it's found in the book of Luke. So if you have your Bibles, I would love for you to open the book of Luke, and we're going to go to chapter 10. And we're going to start in verse 25, and we're going to read verses 25 through 37 this morning. And we're going to look at this passage, and as we begin to look at this passage, you're going to probably see there at the top of it, it is a very well-known parable. So well-known that it is actually defined in the dictionaries of what a good Samaritan is. You'll hear it often in the church. You'll hear it often outside of the church. It is probably the most preached on sermon or at least parable of all those out there. Maybe the most common sermon outside of resurrection itself that is preached. So what I want to do today is this. When we realize how common this really is, I don't want you to say, well, I already know this. So therefore, be quiet so we can get home to watch Selection Sunday. I don't want that to be in your mind right now. What I want you to do is I want you to hear it from a little bit different perspective today. And I want you to take this information that you have, even if you have all the information about it, I want you to take this information you have, and I actually want you to apply it today. I want you to put feet to this teaching today. And I think what we have to do first is we have to really prepare our hearts for that. So let's pray together in that. God, we are so grateful for this morning and grateful for an opportunity to dive into your word. Even though it's a passage that, that, God, we've heard so many times, and we've heard so many people talk about this good Samaritan, just be a good person to people, that, that, God, you have so much more than that in this. And I pray you open our eyes to what we may not know about it, and then even more so, open our hearts and move our feet to do something about it. We pray it in your name. Amen. As we look at questions that Jesus asks, today's question is actually a question that is asked to him. And that question is, is who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And so what I'd like for you to do is pick up here in verse 25 of Luke chapter 10 with me. And we're going to pull this apart as we go through it. And we're going to start here in verse 25, just a few, few words in. It says this, then an expert in the law stood up to test him. I want to pause right there for just a second. You're like, wait, are we going to pause every time? Yes. So it's going to be a long Sunday for you, okay? Here, here's what we have. This very first part here, you, you need to understand something about the culture. When this law expert stands up to test Jesus, there's a couple things you need to understand. Number one is, this guy is an expert in the law. So he knows the law inside and out. You'll even see that from the answers that he gives when Jesus asks the question back to him. But you'll also see this. When somebody stands, they're actually standing in honor and respect. When they ask a question of somebody in this culture, when they stood up, it was in honor and respect. So this man honored and respected Jesus with his outside actions. However, what was he doing again? He was testing Jesus. So therefore, his heart was far from Jesus. I want to pray today that if you are this man, if your outside actions are honoring and respecting to Jesus, yet your heart is far from Jesus, that today is a day that you'll come close to Jesus. Your heart will move closer to him because of what you hear from God today. So we see that first, that he, an expert in the law, stood up to test him. And he stands up to test him, and he says this, Teacher, 
what must I do to inherit eternal life? See, knowing that he was testing him in this, this question lacks sincerity. This question lacks a real desire to have eternal life. He just wanted to test Jesus because he thinks he knows the answer. As a matter of fact, Jesus, as he always does, it seems like, flips it to a question of a question. He answers his question with a question. He says this in verse 26. What is written in the law? She asked him. How do you read it? Now, he just asks an expert in the law. I want you to picture that for just a second. What are you an expert in? And somebody just tosses you that softball watermelon question that you can just right out of the park. I'm going baseball analogy now. Like we're, we're shifting everything around. Oh, yeah. Selection Sunday, I know. I got it. But here's what I want you to see. Imagine this guy's joy. He's like, oh, you're asking me about the law? Let me tell you about the law. So he goes on to quote Deuteronomy. He goes on to quote Leviticus. And he says this in uh, verse 26 and 27. He says, he answered, quoting from Six, uh, Deuteronomy 6, 5, he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And then he shifts gears and goes to Leviticus nineteen eighteen. he says, And love your neighbor as yourself. And look what Jesus says. You have answered correctly, he told him. Do this, and you will live. Now, I'd like to tell you something here about what Jesus is saying, because sometimes people take that out of context when Jesus says, Do this, and then you will live. Jesus is not condoning, he's not getting people excited about works-based salvation. You know why we know that? Because what he just told him to do in Deuteronomy and what he just told him to do out of Leviticus is impossible without Jesus. We cannot love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength without Jesus. We cannot love our neighbor as ourselves without Jesus. Because when we try to love God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength, guess what happens? We start to love ourselves because guess what I'm doing? I'm loving God with all my all. Yeah, I'm pretty good at this stuff. I'm pretty good at this following, being a good person. All of a sudden, I'm like, wait, now I'm loving myself. So if I'm loving myself, I'm not loving him with my all, and everything gets all jumbled up, and then imperfection falls in. You know, it all comes tumbling down. So when Jesus asks that, he says, do this and you'll live. He knows, and we know that it's not possible to do that. But here's the thing that I really look at here. This guy he knew the right answers. He knew the right answers. As a matter of fact, he had all of the information. He had all of the scripture in his head. He is an expert in this. He knows it. You know what the problem is? He's not doing it. How many verses do we know? How many of you grew up going through a wanna or some sort of Sunday school class where you were taught to memorize verses and you have all these verses in your head, yet there's zero application? That's a problem. See, I don't believe that God wants us to, in, to, to memorize his instruction manual and then not do anything. It'd be like me having a broken down car in my driveway, memorize the instruction manual on how to fix it, and then it just stays broken. And Christy's like, hey, why don't you go fix the car? Well, you know, excuse, 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 because that's what we have a tendency to do. He wants us to actually apply that instruction manual. And when we start doing that, we start realizing that Jesus is asking to do that, it starts getting us thinking. And I think that's what happens here with this law expert. Because he's standing face to face with the Son of God. And Jesus says, hey, do this and you'll live. But what is his response? If we go to verse 29, it says this. But wanting to do what? Justify. Don't we like to justify ourselves? Don't we like to say, well, look at my resume. 
my who's in, who's out, I'm on the bubble. Look at my resume, God. You may think I'm on the bubble, but I think I'm in because my resume is pretty good. I want you to justify myself. Therefore, I'm going to ask you to answer a question that's going to help me justify myself. And that question is, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And this is a question really for the day because I believe at some point in time, all of us have asked this question of Jesus. We know the answer, the two greatest commandments that everything hinges on. Even the Ten Commandments wrapped up into two are love the Lord your God with everything and love your neighbor as yourself. How do we love our neighbor ourselves? What is the guideline for that? How can we make sure that we're doing that to effectively follow the rules and justify ourselves before God? Who is my neighbor? Who's in? Who's out? Who's on the bubble? And I really find it funny that when Jesus said, do these things, which is both A and B, that the law expert only focuses on B. Why do you think he only focuses on B? My thinking is, is that he knows that he can show off to everybody else how well he loves his neighbors, but he can't show off how he loves God with his all. So if I'm going to be justified, I want everybody else to see it and praise me for it. So therefore, I'm only going to focus on the things that I can really do and that everybody else can see. So he says, who's in, who's out, and who's on the bubble? When it comes to neighbors, who's your in? Who are the people that are automatically in as your neighbors? The people that look like us? The people that dress like us? The people that talk like us? The people that vote like us, the people that worship like us, the people... We have a pretty decent-sized list of the people who are automatically in as our neighbors. And I think when this uh, law expert is throwing out the question, he's like, I've got a pretty big list of people who are in. So therefore, I'm going to justify myself for doing what needs to be done. And then who's out? Almost everybody who's the opposite of that, right? It's the people who don't dress like us and don't talk like us and don't look like us and don't worship like us and don't vote like us and... So we have an out, and who's on the bubble? Who's on your bubble? Well, generally, isn't it the people that have a pretty decent resume? They have some quality wins and some not-so-quality losses. And we start to weigh it out on who we might want to help. So, so who is it? Jesus, you're on the selection committee. Who is my neighbor? Who's in, who's out, and who's on the bubble? And I think we do it because we want to say, you know what? I'm not that bad of a person. I'm living good because I treat my people well. We begin to justify ourselves like that. And Jesus, how's the answer? He said, your justification is correct. Your ins, your outs, does he do that? No, he tells a story. He tells a story, a parable. And this is how the parable goes. It says, Jesus took up the question and said, a man was going down to Jerusalem from Jericho. Now, in this story, as he's going down that, you have to understand something about the road from, from, from Jerusalem to Jericho. It literally went down. It was a 17-mile-long road that dropped 3,000 feet in elevation. So he's literally going down. And so as you're going down, it's going to kind of play itself out in the rest of this story, but he's going down, and this man, as he's going down, and notice that man has no identity, he didn't say anything about his nationality. He didn't say anything about the way he was dressed. He didn't say anything about the way that he talked. He was just a man. And he fell into the hands of robbers. Because on this road, in the lay of the land, the way it's all broke down, it's more common than not to fall into the hands of robbers. 
And what they do, they stripped him, and they beat him up, and they fled, leaving him half dead. Now, on our list of ins and outs, how do we define if this guy is in or out as our neighbor? He's naked, so we can't do it by his clothes. He's almost unrecognizable from getting beat up, so we can't do it by the way he looks. And uh, he can't talk because he's half dead, so we can't do it by that either. How do we determine if this guy's our neighbor or not? That's what Jesus is trying to get to the point of. And he says, here's what happens. A priest happened to be going down that road, verse 31. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, we'll pause here again. The priest often gets a bad rap. The priest often gets a bad rap in all of this. And I want us to see it for just a minute and break something down for you. And really set it up socially. First of all, the priest isn't walking by. He's riding by because he's upper class. He's socioeconomic up here, so he's riding by. And as he's riding by, he, he begins to see this guy that he's on the road. And, and he knows, he understands the, the idea of the mercy that needs to go. He understands the law as well. The law is very clear that we're supposed to be merciful to everyone. We're supposed to help out everyone. But he sees this guy on the side of the road and has to begin weighing the options. And a lot of times we say, oh, well, if I was in that situation, I'd do it differently. But let me just kind of play something out here for you. That priest, he was probably on his way back from a two-week stint in the, st- in the temple. He, he's coming back from Jerusalem, going to Jericho, and he knows that by religious law, that if he gets within four cubits or within six feet of this man, he is ritualistically unclean. And we might say, well, that's no big deal. You're supposed to help a person out. Who, who cared if you're ritualistically unclean? But then you begin to kind of break it down as you look at this religious law and what that would cost him. Because if you're ritualistically unclean, then you have to go back to Jerusalem and begin a purification process. And that purification process looks something like this. One, you have to buy a red heifer. In buying a red heifer, you have to turn that thing into ash. You have to burn it down to the ground. So you are buying this this red heifer, you're burning it to the ground, and it's going to take at least seven days. Well, during that seven days that you've got going on, you have to stand at the eastern gate where everybody else who has sinned is also standing, and you have to ask for forgiveness from one of your fellow priests. So now there is shame, now there is guilt, now there is all of the things that kind of come with that as you're standing at this gate that go along with helping this guy out. So the cost is starting to mount up. Then you also have to understand this, that his family is going to suffer. Because for the next seven days that he's not a priest, and the money he had to pay out to get that red heifer, and all the things that go with that, he will no longer get the tithes, he will no longer get the gifts at the priest's God. So for seven days, he's going to be without, which means his family is going to be without. So the decision to help this guy wasn't an easy decision. Do I help him and invest in him here and lose all of the things and cause my family harm and all the things like that, or do I just casually walk by? It's not as easy as a decision as we'd like to make it. You know, it's kind of like, I'm not sure if you guys have ever seen the movie Saving Private Ryan. Uh, but at the end of that movie, and I'm going to ruin it for you if you haven't. You've had plenty of time to watch it. Um, the, uh, the end of the movie, there's a scene where a guy, uh, an American guy is getting stabbed, and one of, his, uh, one of his fellow soldiers is sitting on the ground crying. 
And when you watch that film and you watch that scene, you're like, come on, get up and do something. And you're just like yelling at the TV. If I was that guy, I would have killed the other guy with my bare hands. You know, you just get all angry and really, because when we're not in the situation, we have the right answer. But when we're in the situation, it becomes a lot more difficult. And I think that's what it was for the priest. It's real easy for us to say, come on, priest, help him out. Come on, religious guy, help him out. But then we have to look at the whole picture. We have to look at the whole picture and see what it is. So it's not just as easy as saying, you know what, we should do it. Because he's going to become an outcast. He's going to be unable to take care of his family. He's going to have to purchase the cattle. It's going to be unbelievably costly for him to help out. So should he? Because his religion is keeping him from literally engaging with this person. He walks by. Next person, a guy that's a Levite. Verse 32. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, saw him and passed by on the other side. Now, you may need to know this about a Levite. A Levite is a JV priest, a junior varsity priest, okay? The problem is is he's never going to get bumped up to varsity. He's not going to have the money. He's not going to have the status. He's not going to have all that stuff. He desperately wants to be, but he can't. He's stuck in JV. And so he doesn't have all the things. He's probably walking in this case. He's probably walking alone. And as he's walking down this road, we also have to remember this. It's 3,000 feet down over 17 miles. So pretty good chance that you're going to be able to see miles in advance, maybe three to four miles ahead. So he probably saw the priest walk by. And as he saw the priest walk by, he said, well, if the priest isn't going to do it and the priest has everything else that I don't have, then I probably shouldn't do it either. And I don't have any sort of donkey. I have to carry this guy on my back. That's a long ways to get the rest of the way to go down this hill and all that. I really am just not going to do it. So he passes by as well. And then verse 33 says, but a Samaritan. And that Samaritan is a big deal in this story, by the way. A Samaritan on his journey came up to him. And he went and he saw the man and he had compassion. Now, why is the Samaritan a big deal? Well, if you've been around with us for a while, we've, we've talked about when Jesus interacts with the Samaritans. We, we've talked about when he uh, interacted with the woman at the well, that these Samaritans are half-breeds. When Israel was in ca- uh, uh, captivity, they had their captors would marry a male or female Israelite, and what would basically happen is these Samar- uh, Samarians would marry in, and you'd only have a half-Jew, half-breed. And that was not a good thing. And, and there was a lot of hatred in this. And, and the crazy thing is, is that Jesus makes this guy the hero. And you have to understand the people who are listening hated that. Hated that the Samaritan was the hero. Hated this half-breed was the hero. Because he wasn't fully Jewish. The Jews are supposed to be the heroes in the story. You know, the, the Samaritans were so hated by the Jews. There was an oral Jewish law called the Mishnah. And in the Mishnah, what there was was actually a thing that said that if you took bread from a Samaritan, you might as well rub yourself down with bacon grease. You might as well just go ahead and eat pig. Because that's how dirty the Samaritans were. That we don't touch pig and we don't touch Samaritans. They actually would pray in their synagogues for mercy and forgiveness and grace for the Jews and actually say, don't give mercy and grace and forgiveness to the Samaritans. That's quite a bit of hatred. So when Jesus brings up the Samaritan being the man in the story, being the hero in the story, it really gets to this whole idea of, you know what, I don't like it already. 
And here's the crazy thing, too, that we have to see that the Samaritan is not a Gentile. He is still half Jewish, which means because he is half Jewish, he should follow all the same rules, all the same ritualistic, spiritually cleansing rules that you would see the priest and the Levite do. So all the excuses that the priest had, all the excuses that Levi had, this Samaritan had as well. They had the excuses. He had all of that built up in there. But here is how he responded because he was what? Moved with compassion as it says at the end of verse 33. It says, 34, he went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him, and when I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. This is a pretty serious investment in somebody you don't know somebody who was just on the side of the road that, that probably would not repay him, that quite possibly didn't fit into his neighbor of, this guy's in my in bubble, because he's a Samaritan, probably the guy on the side of the road is a Jew. You know, there's a whole lot of reasons why it shouldn't work, yet it does, because he was moved with compassion. And then Jesus pulls out the ultimate question right out of the hat. He pulls it out and he says this in verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And how's the tax expert respond in verse 37? He says the one, not the Samaritan, by the way, the one, didn't even want to give credit to the Samaritans, the one who had mercy on him, who showed mercy to him. Then Jesus said, go and do the same. I told you we're talking about the questions that Jesus asked, and I believe what Jesus did here is he took the question that was asked of who is my neighbor, and he flipped it around to say, who are you? Who are you? Are you a neighbor? Not are you a neighbor to specific groups of people, but are you a neighbor? Are you like the Good Samaritan? This, this law expert, he knows the Bible inside and out. Maybe you know the Bible inside and out. So the question is, how do you see the man on the road? How do you see the man on the road? Because how you see will determine how you respond. How you see will determine how you respond. I mean, think about it for just a second here. We have three groups of people in the middle of all of this. This story has three groups of people. The first group is the thieves. The thieves. How do the thieves see the man on the road? The thieves saw the man on the road as an opportunity and a victim to be used. A victim to be used. Isn't that today's worldview? Do whatever I can to get all I can, and it doesn't matter who I hurt along the way. That is the thieves' view of anybody on the road. That is sometimes our view of anybody out there who we don't consider our neighbor. How can I use them for my benefit and what I can get out of it all? Self-centered to the core, it's all about me. Group two, the religious. The guys, these two Levite, or the Levite and the priest, they see this guy as a major inconvenience to be avoided. A major inconvenience to be avoided. I mean, we already talked a little about, about the inconveniences, but let's just grow it up a little bit more. Think about the excuses that they have to justify not being inconvenienced. I mean, the first thing I thought of was, this guy, he got what he deserved. He got what he deserved. 
He's on a road that is notorious for robbers coming out and beating people up and stealing stuff from them and doing all of that. This guy shouldn't have been traveling alone. He should have been with somebody else. You reap what you sow. Ever said that before? Ever seen that guy or that woman on the side of the road and said, you know what? You did it to yourself. Mm, Stings just a little bit. As I wrote it down, I'm like, no, yes, I have said that. Lots. Then I wrote this one down. Maybe it's not the real deal. Maybe he really isn't hurt. Maybe it's a setup. And if I go over there and try and help, they're just going to take me. Maybe they're going to do something to me. Maybe that money I give them, they're not going to actually use for food. They're going to use it for alcohol. What if, what if, when we start to play those kind of things, we make excuses to say, you know what, I'm not going to because everybody else has walked by this guy. Why should I help? Why should I help? Or even more so, oh, there's people behind me. Somebody else will do it. That's our biggest thing we try and tackle when we talk about the ownership class and being owners at our church. It's not about somebody else doing it. It's about us stepping up and doing it. I've done my religious duty for the month. I went to church. The priests and the Levites, they were coming back from church. They did their religious duty. They don't have to do anything more. I mean, they got their good scale up here and the bad scale down there. It's all good. He isn't like me. As a matter of fact, quite possible he's a sworn enemy. He's a mess, and ain't nobody got time for a mess, because mess means I have to go below the surface and get deep into somebody's life, and when you get deep into somebody's life, then you have to actually listen to him, and then while you're listening to him, you might have to actually do something, so I'm just going to stay away from that mess, and I'm just too busy. I'm just too busy to connect with that neighbor. You know, it's interesting. I heard a story not too long ago. It was on the news, and I, I was going to actually went to try and find a video of it to, to show. But it was a, a news story about a man who had basically disappeared for four years. And he was up in Alaska, and he disappeared for four years, and nobody kind of knew where he was at, and his house had gotten overgrown and done all this kind of stuff. And in the process of the house getting overgrown, uh, back taxes came up. The, the state came and took the house, put it up for auction, the auction it sold, and somebody went in to see what they had bought, and the guy was dead inside the house for the past four years. He had a newspaper sitting on his lap that said 1997. It was in 2001. Nobody knew for four years that he was gone. Nobody knew. It just blew my mind. And when I was searching for it, I typed it into Google, man, because I wanted to find that story again and be able to use it. Dozens and dozens and dozens of the same story came up. People just dying and nobody even knowing. Nobody connected with them. Neighbors are like, well, we didn't even know it's foul odor. But, but there's, what? is that the only way you find out that somebody's dead? I mean, well, there were so many different things that all their, their houses going, well, we called the city to tell them to start pulling their weeds. Well, they're dead. They can't pull their weeds. Maybe if you would have known them, you know, there's some sort of connection. But we're just too busy. You know, five years ago today, we were in Ethiopia, getting in Dalai. Today's is gotcha day, five years, and it's hard to believe it's been five years. You know what I loved about the Ethiopian community? That nobody was in a hurry. And there's also parts of that I'm like, can we hurry up just a little bit? Because I'm an American, we want to make things happen. But you know what they did every time somebody left the country, every time somebody left the orphanage, every time somebody left the halfway house thing, the, the, the little thing that we, we stayed at? 
They did a coffee ceremony. And you guys know me. I've made it pretty clear. I don't particularly like coffee. But what they would do is they would take fresh green coffee beans and they would start a fire in the middle of the living room. And they put those fresh green coffee beans and they start letting them roast. And while they're roasting, they would sit there and talk. I'm like, this is going to be forever. <laughs> and then they would start popping popcorn. And while popping popcorn, they would continue to talk. And then you finally got to the place where, oh, I think the coffee beans are ready. No, we have to grind it. And so they'd take a hand grinder. I'm like, come on. And in the hand grinding process, they would pour it into a kettle. And that kettle would sit there. And I'm like, they put that kettle on the hot water. This was a process, my friends, a process. And we did it every time somebody left. And I don't really like the end result of coffee, and I don't like popcorn. So this was a really not fun time when you're sitting there just waiting for something to happen. However, I began to watch and realize that it wasn't just in this house that they did it. People did it all the time. They would take from 1 o'clock to 2 o'clock off, just like our, our Hispanic brethren that take their siestas. They would just take it off and not worry about anything. And they would sit and they would talk and they wouldn't be too busy for each other. I think sometimes we have to get to that point too where we're just not too busy. Where we're not missing everything that is going on. And that's group two. Seeing that major inconvenience. And then group three, we see the Samaritan. And the Samaritan sees him as an opportunity to minister. Let me read for you again, 35, or 33 through 35. It says this, But a Samaritan on his journey came to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him, and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. When he put it on his own animal, then he brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for what extra you spend. This is the story that I think Jesus wants us to see. This is the story that Jesus wants us to see. He wants us to see an opportunity to minister. And if you break it down in verses 33, 34, and 35, you'll see these things. First, he had compassion. And that means placing ourselves in the individual's shoes, feeling what they feel, and then doing something about it. Then he went to him, verse 34. He didn't avoid the guy who was broken and dirty and hurting and near death. He went to him. Also in 34, it says he took care of his needs. He went over to him, bandaged him with his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine, put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. He took care of his needs. And then fourth, at the end of 34, beginning at 35, he willingly paid the price, a price that he knew he wouldn't be reimbursed for, a price that he knew they wasn't going to be able to do it. It was going to cost him time because he had to stop. He had to bandage the guy. He had to take him to the inn. He stayed at the inn. He took care of him and said, on the way back, I'm going to be inconvenienced again and stop at the inn to make sure all the bills are paid. Took time out of his schedule because I'm pretty sure it wasn't like he looked at his day calendar and went, hmm, yeah, today, help broken guy on the side of the road. It wasn't on there. He, he took it out of his schedule. It cost him energy and effort. He had to put him on the animal, had to bring him in, had to take care of him. It cost him money because he wasn't going to get repaid. And I began to look at that. I said, what do these four steps look like in real life? Compassion, took care of his, their needs, went to them, and willingly paid the price. What does that sound like to you? Because to me, it sounds like Jesus. It sounds like the gospel. 
That is the gospel in a nutshell. He had compassion. He came down to take care of our needs. He came to us in the form of a baby, was raised up, lived the perfect life, and died the perfect death. He willingly paid the price for you and for me. When we see this story, oftentimes we want to put ourselves as one of the three on the road. I think we're the one that's laying on the road. We're the one that's beat up. We're the one that's broken. We're the one that's hurting. We're the one that's without any hope, dead. And then Jesus comes along and brings us back to life. He gives us a new life. He fixes our brokenness. He fixes our lives. He does it all. And because of that, therefore, we should respond as the Good Samaritan because that same thing was done for us. We should respond in a way. See, when we see differently, we will respond differently. When we see what Jesus did for us, it should be how we respond to all others. There's no who's in. There's no who's out. There's no who's on the bubble. It should be all others. It really should be, and that's why Jesus said it that way. goes on to say this. You know, all I can think about is Ken asking a question last week. And Ken, thank you, by the way, for leading the communion service last week. But he said, during the communion service, think of something that you were thankful for that you can celebrate in Jesus. And, and I probably butchered that question a little bit of how you asked it exactly. But both of my kids that were in here that Christy heard, you know what their response was? Thankful Jesus allowed us to adopt. Thankful that Jesus allowed us to adopt. See, their perspective was changed. They saw things differently. They saw things differently because we have little ones in the house. Some kids might have said, hey, I'm thankful that God let us go to Disneyland. I would be thankful for that if you guys are feeling generous. But the... the um, the reality that we really look at in this kind of thing is that sometimes we get caught up in these things of this world instead of missing the picture of getting to be the Good Samaritan because God sent the Good Samaritan, Jesus, to us. That we get to be a part of that. And, you know, we see things differently. In Dolly's Gotcha Day, man, since then it has changed me. I tell Levi and Lily, our other two, I said, you better be thankful for Ndali because if he wasn't as cool as he is, you guys wouldn't be here. But he seriously has changed us, and they have changed us. And so much so, we're doing it again. I mean, all of those things, when we look at it in our lives, why do we do that kind of stuff? Why do we have a special needs ministry here at the church? Can I tell you that the church is almost nine years old? In April, we'll be nine years old. I think about that and all the things that God has done in nine years, and one of the things that really stands out to me is, I can go back to our original documents, and it never said anything about special needs. It wasn't a focus. It wasn't anything I even saw. And then God opened my eyes and helped me see things differently. When we allow God to open our eyes, we will see things differently. Instead of saying, how good am I because I do this for certain neighbors, I think we need to say, what kind of neighbor are we? How are we loving? See, the law expert had all the knowledge, but it took Jesus to change the way that he lived with that knowledge. We can have all the knowledge, but Jesus is going to change you. He is going to work on you. And it starts first in our hearts. And it starts in our hearts. And we have to see, even as a law expert, he stood and recognized Jesus, but in his heart he was far from him. We have to see our hearts. We have to check our motives. Why do we want to do it? Are we just out here to test Jesus? Or because, because Jesus 
gave to us, we are going to respond the same. Check my heart, check my motives. And you say, man, loving everybody is so difficult, though. And you know what? It's impossible. It's impossible without Jesus. Can I challenge you on something here as we wrap up today? How do you eat an elephant? Well, sorry, what was that? One bite at a time. I'm not sure if you saw that video that we started off with in the beginning of the service. Who's your one? 7.6 billion people live on this planet. How do we make a difference? How can we tackle that one bite at a time? We're starting a thing today called Who's Your One? It's a thing from the North American Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. And Who's Your One? It's funny, they've rebranded it, but I remember being a kid. It was like, hey, who you, who's your friend Sunday? You plus one Sunday. They always have something along those lines. It's nothing hugely new. But you'll see on your seats, there is a business card. There's also a prayer card that has verses for a 30-day prayer thing, but they didn't send me enough to give you all of those, so we gave kind of two different things. And there's also a sheet that kind of explains Who's Your One? You can go to whosyourone.com, or you can go to our website and go to the Who's Your One on the menu bar. And what we're trying to challenge you to do for the next 30 days is to start with a name. That's the first bite. Because you know what I think we have a hard time with? Is that like the man in the story, there's no name. How can we care for somebody that we don't even know? How can we go, you know what, I really want to invest in you and your family, you it's about a name, it's about a relationship, it's about engaging in that community. See, the engaged thing doesn't stop today. We're, we're moving in that direction. It has to start with a name. We have to engage with at least one. My question is, is who's your one? Who's your one? Think outside of your regular box. Think outside of your in. And think about those who's out. How can you relate to them? How can you connect with them? Who is your one neighbor that needs to hear about Jesus and you are in that place where you are to share it?